Hello, and welcome to another episode of Dice and Dachshunds. I'm Matthew. And I'm Diana. I've got Mikey on my lap. Buddy's over on the couch. We're sorry it's been so long since our last podcast. Many, many things have happened, including uh, Matthew going to uh, Gen Con and us playing lots of games. So let's talk about a few. The first game that we're going to talk about is Above and Below, which is by the uh, same artist as City of Iron that we reviewed so glowingly a few episodes ago. It's also super duper pretty and a well-designed game and fun to play. Each player is a town on the surface of this world, and you can buy buildings to build and recruit villagers and gather resources. And theoretically, you could just play a whole game doing just, just those things. But what gets you the points is mounting expeditions below ground which, if you successfully complete them, allow you to build more buildings and more powerful buildings underground. There's a book of adventures, and so when you go to mount an expedition, there's a a semi-random number comes up on the card, and it says, okay, you have adventure number 87, and so you turn to adventure number 87. And that happens. And there's some chance involved. You usually have to make a choice. And, you know, you can go for the more difficult thing or stay with the safer thing. And, uh, yeah, if you succeed, you get a usually some resources or points or something. And the opportunity to build a building underground. And so the, the idea is that you're building up the prestige of your town, and then whoever has the most prestigious town at the end is the winner. I hope that made sense. Yeah, I'd say so. The designer is Ryan Lockett, and the company is called Red Raven Games. He designs, paints, does the art direction and graphic design, and is the president of the publishing company for all of these games. Above and Below is, I would say, it's a medium to light game. It's beautiful to look at. The mechanics are pretty easy and simple, but the storybook is what really makes it interesting because of the wide variety of adventures and uh, the choices that you make. Whether or not you succeed on those choices is usually driven by the various skills of the villagers you sent down to adventure but you have the ability to injure one of your adventurers in order to increase your chances of success. They kind of overexert themselves to help you get over the hump. The last game I saw being played of this was at a board game weekend we held, and my brother was joking about the various injuries he was inflicting on his villagers to uh, encourage them to do their best on these adventures. I can't imagine there were a lot of people signing up to join his village. (laughs) Like Diana said, the art is gorgeous. He has a very distinctive style. I think you probably are either going to really like it or not. Above and Below takes place in the same universe as his new game, Islebound, that just came out at Gen Con and is now available in stores. And he just kick-started a sequel 
to above and below called near and far, which kind of takes the similar mechanics of above and below to a new, more complex level. Uh, it looks really cool. The only possible criticism that I have, and it's not necessarily something that, that could be gotten around, is that the adventures we're having are kind of random and they feel kind of random. There's no sort of progression of story or anything. You just go on an expedition, you know, turn to page, whatever, and there's ghosts. Or you meet a lone adventurer. Or there's a caravan full of frog people. There's no progression or anything which can feel a little bit you know wait so I went underground and now there's this like giant river I didn't know about but uh you know who knows how far you're going so it's it's not really a problem but some people have complained about that yeah they're kind of tiny vignettes uh, imagine if each one was a choose your own adventure book that was written on note cards and was about three pages long and that's kind of what the experience is like when you go underground. In fact, there may not even be more story associated with the choices you make. It may just simply be the the reader of the story telling you what the choice you selected got you in terms of goodies. I think he's doing more with the narrative in Near and Far, but I don't know the details. So that's above and below. Is there anything else you wanted to say about it? Some of the scoring is a little unusual in this game. It encourages you to diversify the types of goods that your village produces as broadly as possible. Yeah, it's an odd game. It plays very differently from a lot of other games I've played, and that's not necessarily a bad thing at all. It just means that different strategies may make more sense. Yeah, we've played it a couple of times, but not necessarily enough to really say, okay, you know, this is going to be my my preferred strategy or anything. We we haven't gotten it down to a science. Oh, apparently, barrels of cider and beds are very important to these mm-hmm. small people. Well, aren't they to everyone? Yeah, I suppose. Depends on whether or not the cider's alcoholic, I guess. They're they're a little uh, cagey on that point. Yeah. So the next game we were going to talk about is called Zolkin, the Mayan Calendar, or as I like to refer to it, Zolkin, the Mayan Merry-Go-Rounds. Yeah, that's pretty accurate. This is a worker placement game put out by CGE, and it has a really fascinating board. There are several wheels gears, plastic gears that are attached to the board and rotate. And when you've constructed the whole board, they're all interconnected with one big center wheel rotating all of the others each time it's turned. That wheel acts as sort of a timekeeper for the entire game. Each game takes place over one revolution of this giant wheel, one gear tooth at a time. And each time you turn it, it turns all the small gears. Each of the smaller gears represents a city in the Mayan Empire, and each gear has different specialties and actions associated with it. On your turn, you can choose to either place as many workers as you want, or take as many workers as you want off of the board. The things that complicate this are the facts that the more workers you place on your turn, the more you have to spend to put them on the wheels, 
You can't put on workers and take off workers on the same turn, and you only get resources from your worker placement when the workers come off of the board. Generally, you have to put the workers at the entrance point on a wheel, and then they'll sit there as the wheel turns each turn until you take them off. And the longer they stay on the wheel, typically, the better the action or goodie that they do. So it encourages, in fact, requires planning ahead. There's a giant wheel that represents the temple. I think it's Chichen Itza, where you can trade in crystal skulls for favor with the gods and victory points. And this is a much larger wheel than the other city wheels. But you have to have one of these crystal skulls by the time your little guy wants to get off of the merry-go-round, which means another little guy needs to have gotten onto a different merry-go-round and collected the skull before it's time to kick the other guy off. Add to that the fact that you have to either put on a worker or take off a worker every turn, and leaving one worker on a large wheel for a long period of time like that can actually be rather tricky. In most worker placement games, the more workers you get, the better. In Zolkin, sort of like a new Rosenberg game, you do have to feed your workers, though. At four points over the course of the game, you have to feed each of your workers to corn. And the corn is the same commodity you're using to pay for putting workers on the board. So keeping track of the amount that you're going to need can be really tricky. Fortunately, that large central calendar wheel really gives you a great visual warning that the next feeding day is coming up soon. It's a really visually cool game, you know, really different. It's got these gears, and it's got the stickers on the gears, and it's got the little workers that you place in the little slots on the gears, and then as the gears move, your little guy moves around it, and it kind of feeds into the the same thing that makes me love Caverna so much. There's so many little bits, and they, they look cool, and they move around. And anyway, I, I guess I'm just kind of uh, fascinated by that sort of thing. But uh, it's also, like Matthew said, really strategic. You have to be really thinking about, okay, I'm going to place this worker, and then I need to place another one because I need that other thing. Then next turn, I'm going to need... Let me hold this one back so that I can place one so that then I don't have to take anything off until the following turn. And the turn after that, where will everything be? Will I have what I need? What order do I need to take these off in? And of course, if you had all the time in the world, you could just take things, put things on and take things off and, you know, bide your time. But you also have to be thinking that these feeding days are coming up. And, you know, the end of the day game is coming up and you have to get your favor with the gods and advance your technology tracks and, and do all these things that'll get you points if you want to win the game. It's got a lot going on. A lot of things you have to be thinking about. You open up your little baggie of, of tokens of, you know, in your color and there's the ones that you put on the merry-go-rounds and there's the ones that you put on the technology tracks, and there's the ones that you put on the favor of the gods tracks, and there's the one that you put on the point track, and then there's the ones that represent the corn and the crystal skulls and the wood and all the other things you're going to need, and there's just lots of lots of little moving parts, literally, and that's fun. From a 
wannabe designer perspective, the gears are a really fascinating element because they streamline a lot of the bookkeeping that a game designed like this would normally require. When you look at Caverna, for example, you spend a fair amount of time putting new tokens on each square, each worker placement location each turn as the resources gather up. Zolkin, you really don't have to put anything else on the board once you start, with the exception of maybe replenishing a few of the buildings as they get built. The gear system really takes care of most of that for you, and it brilliantly makes time a resource even more concretely than other worker placement games I've tried a game we played, but weren't really going to go into much detail on this podcast without a few more games uh, recently, is Steam Time. And the whole theme of the game has to do with time travel. And the way that they sort of try and build that into the game is by having a series of worker placement options that are on these modular boards and requiring you to only place your workers from left to right or top to bottom, depending on how you're looking at the board, without the ability to move back once you place a worker a certain distance to the right, you have to keep going to the right with future workers. Zolkin really models time in a much more concrete way. You know that you have to put on a worker and you can see how long he's going to have to stay there at a glance. You can see and extrapolate out where your other workers are going to be at that same time at a glance. It's a really, really clever design. I'd like to see more games playing around with a sort of gear mechanic. I'd be done with that. <laughs> it's funny that, that with all the steampunky games out there in the world, it's the one whose theme is the Mayan calendar that is the first ones to actually have, that I've heard of anyway, to actually have gears on the board as a core mechanic. Mm -hmm. So that's Zulkin. It's spelled T-Z-O-L-K apostrophe I-N, the Mayan calendar. And there's an expansion out for it that I really want to try that adds special powers for each player, additional buildings, and events, I think they're catastrophes, but they may be positive and negative events, I'm not sure, that actually go on the calendar wheel, so everybody knows they're coming, but they're another aspect that you have to adapt your strategy to. So the last game of the sort of big games that we've been playing that we wanted to talk about today is Iki, which is spelled I-K-I, and it's theme is the uh, marketplace in Kyoto, Japan? Is it Edo? Where is it? I don't remember. It's kind of Edo era, but uh, I'm not sure if the market has a specified locale, but it is a, a traditional sort of medieval Japanese market. Maybe a little post-medieval, but still a, a sort of traditional market. And you are... Uh, you're supposed to be sort of a magnate. You're putting out stalls in the market, and you also have a, a little wooden figure who's moving around the market and can then do business with both the stalls that you've put out and the stalls that your opponents have put out. 
and that gets you resources that give you points in the game. But when you do business with other people's stalls, that gives them experience, which gets them closer to retiring. And a retired stall worker gives you income but doesn't have to be fed, as that implies. There's a, there's a feeding mechanic. There's also fires that break out every so often, and so you have to be building up your firefighting skill, which is one of the resources you can get. It doesn't give you victory points directly, but it lets you choose what you're going to do first, which can be you know, a, a pretty big advantage, as well as, of course, preventing your stalls from burning up. The art is a big part of what makes this game so neat to me. It's very much in the style of woodblock prints, Hiroshige, that sort of thing, traditional Japanese artwork. The board design itself is actually based on a, a very famous wall scroll depicting a massive Japanese market. Functionally, the game is built as a rondelle. Your main worker moves through the uh, market in only one direction, and you have some control over how each... Okay, we're back. We had to take a little bit of Hush, a break buddy. to get Buddy some water. He was thirsty. I've tried repositioning the microphone, so hopefully Diana will be a little bit easier to hear going forward. I have a teeny little voice. That's <sighs> true. So, as I was saying, Iki could be considered a rondelle game in that there is a circle or other shape that has a series of possible actions that you would want to take, and rather than simply choosing the action you want, you instead have control over how far a pawn moves on that shape in one direction. So you not only have to plan what you're going to do on a turn, you have to plan what you're going to do on a turn in relation to things you're about to do. So you can kind of extrapolate out where your pawn is going to be in future turns or be able to go. The neat thing about Iki is that the rondelle is changing. There are base actions at each spot, but as Diana said, there are also cards placed by you or other players on various spots around the market that you can choose to interact with at the same time to get two things done instead of one. When you interact with other people's cards, you give those vendors experience, which means they get closer to retirement, and when they're retired, they provide benefits to their owner on each of the paydays, but they don't have to be fed. So it's it can really help your opponent if you use their stall. And they come off the board, which means that no one can interact with them anymore, so if you were planning to go over there so that you could get that thing from that stall, by the time you get there, that stall might not be there. Right. When each person completes a circuit of the market, all of their cards go up in experience level. So probably twice during this game we played, I actually retired one of my own vendors who I was going to visit because I didn't realize that his experience was going to move off his individual experience track before I could get to him simply because I crossed the midpoint of the market on my way to see him. It's another neat example of a game that's not that complicated in terms of the rules, but has a lot of interplaying factors that can be really interesting to work with. Well, it does have a lot of sort of interlocking mechanics. You have to, you know, you have your firefighting skill, which gives you the order in which you can bid 
for how far you want to move around this turn and you have to be keeping track of all the stalls experience and you know your own stalls experience and when the next feeding's coming up and when the next fire's coming up so and it's got some little fiddly rules like there's space for two stalls at each position but you can only interact with one of them that sort of thing it's got a lot of things that you can get wrong on your first game and then go oh oh wait this was supposed to work that way i don't know if i would call that rule fiddly but they recently rewrote the manual for this new printing, and I've seen both manuals. The new one is significantly easier to understand. The first manual reads sort of like a straight translation from Japanese into English without regard for colloquial usage and kind of grammar flow. But the second one still has some points that are a little vague. One game that this reminds me the most of is Lahav, which is the one where you're you're outfitting your shipping line, and so you're buying boats and you're shipping things on boats and and all of that. And there's there's just piles of different kinds of resources you can get that you can upgrade into other resources by interacting with these other things, and then by building these buildings that let you transform this into that. And what reminds me most of this is the fact that Matthew is really, really good at it. It just works with his brain in in a way that not all games do, but that when it does happen, it makes him really hard to beat. Matthew loves this game. Matthew is good at this game. I'm not sure I ever have a chance to win at this game. We've only played it a couple times. so You're only going to get better. So are you. <laughs> I'm just saying that it seems to work. You and you, your brain and it just seem to work together somehow. Okay. So we've played Lahav a bunch of times. I have never won. Mm -hmm. I have never lost by less than 100 points. <laughs> I like Lahav. I know. It's a great game. It may be my new favorite Uwe Rosenberg game. Oh, let's see. We were gonna <laughs> we were gonna talk about two new dexterity games that we discovered as well, Ice Cool and Junk Art. Shall we talk about Ice Cool first? Sure. Ice Cool is pretty simple. Ice Cool is really cool boxes, nesting, interlocking boxes. You take all the boxes out, and according to the diagram, you put them together with clips, and what they form is a high school for penguins. And your job as a penguin, penguin high school student, is that you want to go collect fish, which are in doorways. So you have to flick your little penguin people, which are sort of uh, bottom heavy and rounded on the bottom. So they roll and jump, but also can rebound and curve. And, and it takes quite a bit of practice to figure out what exactly they're going to do when you flick them in a certain way. And if you get them through the doorway that has the fish on it, you get uh, you get the fish, and at the end of the round, you get points for your fish, except that one of you is the hall monitor, and his job is to catch high schoolers who are out catching fish instead of in class, and when he bounces off of you, he touches you, he can take your hall pass, and then at the end of the round, everybody gets a point for the number of hall passes they have, 
So you get one point if you manage not to let the hall monitor take your hall pass. And if you're the hall monitor, you get a point for every hall pass you took away in addition to the one that you started with. That's it. That's the whole game. There's one tiny iota bit more to it in that when she says points for each pass you have, she means card. Each card has a random value between one and three for the number of points it gives you. Generally, I'm not wild about that sort of thing because it means that somebody who's two people who've done just as well at a portion of the game could have wildly varying scores. They do mitigate this to some extent in iSchool by letting you sort of spend, you still get the points, but spend two cards that are single point cards together to ice skate, which means you get to take a second turn in a row, which can be a big deal if you actually know how to shoot your penguin in a useful manner instead of bouncing off the same walls again and again and finding herself in despair trapped in the corner of a room. <laughs> Not that I'd know anything about that. Uh, it's just like high school all over again. <laughs> the other game... <laughs> <laughs> the other game we were going to talk about is Junk Art, which is the new release from Pretzel Games. They're known for making beautiful wooden games and wooden boxes with the central conceit that you should be able to play all of their games while holding a pretzel in one hand. Unfortunately, their games do not come with giant soft pretzels that would require a single hand to hold. Junk Art is a dexterity game where... You're stacking pieces on top of other pieces, attempting to attain sculptures of specific heights or using specific pieces or that are just more structurally stable than the other structures at the table. The theme is that you're a traveling artist and you're doing a tour of different cities in the world. Each round takes place in a different city. There are a bunch of city cards in the game, and each city uses the pieces in the game and the cards that correspond to those pieces in very different ways. So if you're playing the recommended starter set of three cities, your first city you may be playing cards on other people to force them to add specific pieces to their towers that you don't think they, they'll be able to do without dropping stuff. And then the last tower standing is the winner. Right. Another one could be a speed round where you've got 10 cards corresponding to 10 pieces and you're frantically trying to add as many of those pieces to your tower as possible. And if some fall off, that's fine. You just have to put them back on. And the first person to get all 10 pieces balanced on top of their base somehow is the winner of that round with other participants getting points for the number that they did have on their base at the end of the round. Whereas another one could be everybody working on the same tower in the center of the table, again, sort of playing cards to force people to add to the tower as kind of a rotating dare. And then the one who places the piece that makes it all fall down gets penalized. Right. It's really neat. They use these pieces, which are very carefully selected. It's, it's remarkable how well they do work together once you start playing with them compared to what they look like when you first take them out of the box. It's a neat game. Yeah, I like junk art, too. It's fun and quick and light and something that, that you can play without having to 
sit down and puzzle over pages and pages of rules. It's, you know, the most important thing is, okay, how does the story work? And then, you know, what is this city's rules? It doesn't require a lot of reading, though it does require a lot of fine motor control. Which I don't have. And it's a game that Matthew is not automatically incredibly much better than I am at, so, you know, that's an advantage. And it's, you know, not every game is like that, even for more traditional games, but if you have somebody who always wins the game, this is a great leveler of a game that requires very different skills than most board games, so it's fun. So that's a bunch of games, and we of course have played lots more games since we last posted, because we last posted ages ago, but we should probably wrap it up here, and we'll be back next time. No promises about exactly when that'll be. But uh, we, we will definitely have played more games and be able to talk about more games. All right. Well, thanks for sticking with us. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions of games we should check out, etc., please send us an email at diceanddoxins at gmail.com. Uh, we also have a listing on BoardGameGeek now. Should you wish to go check us out there and leave comments on our listing, that works too. Uh, you can find us on iTunes and, and leave a review. We'd love that especially if it's a nice review. But yeah, let us know what you think. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.